Welcome to the Gift of Life podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreau. I'm Sarah Blakemore. On the episode today, we'll be discussing the hidden challenges that all families encounter while waiting on a transplant. And we're going to give you some tips to be your most authentic self. All that and more right here on the Gifted Life. You guys ready? Yep. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. Here on The Gifted Life, uh, we are honored to be able to talk to Bob and Mary Evans. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we know that you guys are the driving force behind the Jeffrey Campbell Evans Foundation. So we want to get into that and what great things the foundation is uh, able to do these days. And we want to start by learning more about who Jeffrey Campbell Evans was. So mom, dad, can you can you tell us? Okay, I'd be happy to tell you that. Jeff's story started as far as the transplant goes when he was 23 years old. He was actually a four-star chef in the city of Atlanta, and um, he loved everything to do with cooking. And he, he loved even cleaning the grills or washing the floors or cooking, whatever. And um, the restaurant that he worked for, the owner loved to do charitable events. And Jeff being Jeff, with the big heart that he had, always volunteered his time to go on these charitable events. So they were in South Georgia on a Saturday afternoon. And as we understand it, the weather was pretty bad and it was an outdoor event. And so when Jeff came home, he just felt like he maybe had the flu. So he came and stayed with us for a few days. And after a few days, we realized that this was more than the flu. So Bob took him to the local hospital, to the emergency room, and they um, took x-rays of his chest. They thought maybe he had pneumonia, whatever they thought he might have had. And what Bob heard after someone looked at Jeff's x-ray hanging on the wall was, oh, my God, whose heart is this? Mm-hmm. As it turned out, they determined that an unknown virus had attacked Jeff's heart and in that short amount of time destroyed 80% of its function. So he was immediately transferred to St. Joseph's Hospital in Atlanta. Um, Back in those days, that's where they did heart transplants. And he was in the hospital for a full month being evaluated, and then he was put on the heart transplant list. And he lived on the heart transplant list for three years. And at the end of three years, he lost his battle with the heart disease, and he passed away at age 26. So that was his story. And that is why we do what we do. About, I'm going to say eight or nine years later, I was sitting at my kitchen table having a cup of coffee one morning, and I just turned my head up to heaven, and I said, God, you have got to show me some way to make sense of losing my boy, because to this mom, it makes no sense that he's gone. And what came into my mind was when he was first diagnosed, he was told he would have to move from Atlanta to to Birmingham to get a heart transplant because of the health insurance he had at the time. Well, fortunately for us, they worked that out and we did not have to make that move, but it would have just sent us into a financial tailspin if we had had to do it. Because let's face it, it's hard to keep two households going financially. 
But anyway, they worked that out for us and we didn't have to do it. But I thought back to that and I thought there's people coming into Atlanta under those same circumstances because Emory and Piedmont and Children's are all transplant hospitals in Atlanta. And so the idea came to build a transplant house. And so that night, I, Bob came home from work and I had our son Brad come over and I explained to them what I now call my vision. And they said, let's go for it. And so the next morning I woke up and I thought, okay, now what do I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I got this vision, what do <laughs> yeah. I do? And my only reference was the heart transplant unit at St. Joseph's. So I called there and I found out that all of that had been transferred to Emory Hospital. So I called um, Emory, their heart transplant unit, and I was lucky enough to get a nurse answer, to answer the phone. And she was so excited about this concept of the transplant house. And she said, I'll have a, one of our doctors call you as soon as I can. And I was a little skeptical of thinking, what doctor is going to call me when they don't know me and this is all brand new? But wouldn't you know, 20 minutes later, Dr. Andy Smith, heart transplant surgeon at Emory Hospital, called me and talked to me about what we were going to do and just gave me some ideas on how to get started. So that's how the whole thing started. And when we formed our first board of directors, someone said, let's start smaller and just do apartments. So that's how we got into the apartment concept. So um, on July 1st of 2017, we opened our first fully furnished two-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment, all with everything donated from the community. All of the furniture was donated. Wow. Must have a great community there, huh? Good community support. Exactly. It was amazing what happened. And someone moved in that very day. Our first patient. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so so let's talk there, about he this. He was there for seven months. So then, since then, we now have opened five more apartments. So we have a total of six. And our seventh one will be opened right at the, at the beginning of September of this year. So that's our story. And that's why we do the Transplant House. You guys are rocking and rolling, so seven, uh, and it came up with uh-huh. uh, just an idea. So, Bob, um, when she comes to you and she has this idea, what's going through your head? <laughs> a lot of things <laughs> go through. A lot of things go through it, especially over so many years now that we've been, in a general sense, working on this kind of an concept and idea. But at large, the idea really of doing something on a grander scale is eminent, and it has to be done. Because the people, generally speaking, if they're listening in and have no real understanding of the transplant world, here in this state of Georgia, all by its lonesome, there's over 4,200 people having to have a transplant. The number is very high. And what's very, very low, and the public doesn't know this either, is last year of 2019, between Emory Children's Hospital of Atlanta and people they only did 1,100 and I think 30 transplants. They're booked. So if you look at the relationship between that and the number of people needing one, it's hard to say, but I always say maybe 70% of the people will never be fortunate enough even to even have a transplant. And having our son go through this world, and he really was in and out of the hospital for many different, very, very important reasons to sustain his life. The fact is, we just decided ourselves that we've got to give a gift. Mary and I really believe this in our heart. We've got to give a gift back to society. 
and our gift is taking care of the people, really, that we once were ourselves, which the public doesn't understand either, called the uh, the caregiver. As the two sides of the, of the of a situation is the patient, which is the critical part, but another part that gets totally lost, and it has been lost, is the caregiver who has a normal life, but then has to put things more or less on hold and is caught up with a patient who's not healthy. You just don't be put on a transplant list and nothing happens. You're constantly taking heavy medications to sustain your life. And people go through mood swings and things like that. And so somebody has to be with them basically 24 seven to make it possible to be on the transplant list as well too. So we, like to, we like to refer to ourselves as caretaker advocates. I don't even mm -hmm. know if that's a topic. That's, no, that, that sounds, that sounds yeah. exactly right. what y'all are doing. So I wanted to ask, because, so there's all these burdens almost and all these difficulties when you are listed for a transplant. So how did y'all focus in on housing for transplant recipients and their families? Well, we just focused on it because we almost had to do this ourselves. And if we had had to go to Birmingham and Jeff and I maybe would have lived in an apartment, I would have had to quit my job at the time. And we had a son in college at the time, so Bob would have stayed here. And it would have just been a financial burden that we would have sunk under. We, we would have done it. There are actually caregivers that live in their cars because they cannot afford a place to stay and they have to be close to the hospital. So that's, that's why we focused on that, just to make, my goal is just to make, I call them my caregivers, as comfortable as possible and to make their journey as easy as possible because I've walked in their shoes and I know what it's like. And they are, they are, uh, they have to be so strong at the hospital and they have to be strong around their families. And inside they're just falling apart. They're worried about everything possible. And I will tell you that when I greet them at our apartments and turn over the keys, what I always tell them is this. I said, I've walked in your shoes. I know what's in your heart and I know what's in your head. But more importantly, I know what you're not saying. And I said, if you wanna just let loose right now, I've got big shoulders and you just go ahead and get it off your shoulders. And a lot of times it just ends up with me holding them in my arms and just letting them cry it out. That's how frustrated caregivers are. That's why my heart lies with the caregiver. Well, Mary and Bob, not, I, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was just gonna simply just make a simple statement too. We all look at what the situation is called a transplant. But again, it, it's very, very complex. The surgery itself is some of the most critical surgery performed on earth. And yes, that's critical in the eyes of what we're doing. But really too, the other side of it is there's family tied to everything happening too. And they get, over, the medical industry has regretfully at large overlooked that side of that completely. Yeah, and I was gonna say, uh, Mary and Bob, I applaud you both for you know, your foresight, obviously, you guys went through it. You lived through it. Mm -hmm. You saw the challenges yeah. on a daily basis and, and how that impacted oh, cool. you guys as a family. And, and uh, Bob, you had mentioned, you know, it, it goes somewhat unnoticed, you know, that family, uh, the challenges, especially with the housing. Uh, and I can mm -hmm. assure you, you know, by that, that 
Dr. Smith calling you back by that nurse being so yes. excited and that and that uh, Dr. Smith calling you guys back within 20 minutes. Clearly they knew, you know, that's something in the medical on the medical side. You you may not get, you know, that uh, feeling from a day to day interaction with with the medical staff of the transplant mm-hmm. units. But but they clear they know that how much of a challenge it is, you know, to families and and, uh, you know, that it's not just that that patient, that transplant patient that they're trying to work with. It's it's the you know, the families that have to burden so much of the stress and responsibility to keep things positive and to keep things moving in the right direction. And and I, I guess I, I just want to say I applaud both of you guys for taking that on. And and then clearly it didn't go unnoticed by it was something that they jumped on, obviously, very quickly. Well, I'll tell you where that this topic leads to is the social workers at the hospitals. And that's my contact at the hospital. My patients call them their angels on earth. They are the ones that take care of that, the personal side of the, rather than the medical side of it, the social worker is zeroed in on the personal side of it. And just what you said is true because a lot of that care comes from the social workers. I can't sing their praises enough for what I see them do. It's not an easy job. You're dealing with people that are just in crisis and they're just experts at it. I, I, all kudos to social workers at the hospitals. Oh, I love that. And, and listening to you guys, it's it's like the more you expand, I know you're going to your, your seventh. Um, it sounds like the more mm-hmm. you want to do it, the more you need to do it. Do you guys become... Uh, part of these families that come and stay in your apartments do you get, keep up with them tell us i get way yeah. too close to my family oh this <laughs> is part of the job that i did not really anticipate how emotional it would be i get very close to the caregivers i, I love my caregivers yes as we go down this road and we're on the road now more so than ever before it's as if we can't stop for real. And we know there's so much yet undone that it's possible to be done. And that's where we're pushing. And things are now surfacing on a very, very larger positive mode. And uh, I, it's the other side of the whole thing is, too, is we can't stop. We've been fortunate to watch people survive surgeries, and we've been unfortunate to even watch or not watch, but to have a small child the age of six months, not pull through. So transplants cover all ages. Most people assume it's adults, but the children are caught up in this world too, as much to a large degree. Our, our patients have ranged from newborns to 72-year-old gentlemen. And we've had 80 families live in our apartments over the last three years. And a really good statistic is, it's sad, but it's true. We've only lost five which is pretty good odds for the story of a transplant. And when you ask me if I get close to them, yes, I do. My son and I have gone to all five of those funerals just to show our support for the, you know, for the ones that didn't end well, because we've also, we've also lived that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your mission is such a valuable one in the transplant world. Uh, I certainly hope that it gains traction not only there at Emory and, and Piedmont and Children's in, in Atlanta, 
uh, you know, but but throughout the country. I know of one or two that I've heard of uh, some similar to the transplant house that you guys uh, started. Mm-hmm. But but yeah. I. I would love to see that gain traction throughout, you know, pretty much in each each state. It would be great. Do you guys have any future plans with that? Well, just yesterday we had a meeting that was very important with Emory Hospital and University with the transplant doctors and administrative people. And um, it looks like it's very hopeful that we will have a transplant house built on Emory's campus. We have a... a um, an architect in Atlanta who has designed a house for us at no cost to us, by the way, which is unbelievable. And it ha- it will contain 20 two-bedroom, two-bathroom apartments plus common areas. And I were very unique, like in the country. I don't know that there's even another one like what we are planning to do. And interestingly enough, during this COVID-19 situation, we have become the only option in Atlanta for transplant patients because all other hospitality houses are built on the, a model of um, like the patient has a room, but everything else is communal. So they had just closed them down. So we are the only ones right now receiving transplant patients. So we are 100% occupancy at all times. And now we're going forward with this bigger plan of this wonderful transplant house and hopefully within the next I'm going to say two or three years I hope maybe I'm too hopeful about that but that we'll have that built and it will be somewhere near the Emory campus so that's exciting news for us it just happened yesterday is there an average stay for families or is it just all over the board Um, or the average stay is two months we have had as short as two weeks and we've had as long as seven months so it's just, you just never know. Um, I have an expression for transplants that probably isn't the most um, romantic idea. <laughs> I call transplants a crapshoot. You just never know. You don't ever know when you're going to get the donor. You don't know when you're going to get the surgery, how the recovery is going to go. It's all just a big mystery from beginning to end. Now, do you guys ever sit over so, dinner and just say, huh, that was just a little idea wild hair that came to me one night and and here we are like when you sit back um, what do you think about well i can yep. answer that one pretty simply we're having this conversation <laughs> with your group yeah <laughs> and the answer to a, that question first. is a definite yes <laughs> we do we we laugh at ourselves that when we started this we literally jumped off of a cliff not knowing where we would land but we just kind of pride ourselves that we took the leap yeah. And I think it's because this is where we are now. And I think it's absolutely smaller... incredible that, you know, through your family's tragedy, you know, your son did not receive the gift that he needed. And you're still willing and motivated to help others in similar situations. I think it's incredible. I really do. Yeah. I should mention to you that some years ago, when Jeff was with, still with us, and even through his crisis part, I had the opportunity, opportunity to actually kind of work with a gentleman and having lunch with him one afternoon, he expressed to me that his, and his name was Tommy Smith, born and raised in Duluth, Georgia, but he had to go through a, a kidney transplant and the circumstances that brought that on were beyond belief, but 
he ran into a situation when he had to do this many years ago. There was no information even available in the state of Georgia that he could gleam to to tell him how to get around and do what he had to do or take care of himself. And he fortunately birthed another foundation here called the Georgia Transplant Foundation. And he has since passed on because of his, his injuries too. But because of them and our son, Jeff, we've got that window, that look into what the world is really all about. And that's never gotten out of our heads, quite frankly. And it's all we can do to try to keep things together here for the transplant world. There's some reasons why we really are motivated. It's our son's loss and other fortunate people that have been in our, in our on our path that have helped us through mm. the journey of where we're going. And we're still going down that road. So we know that you want to do more. We know that people are donating time, talents, funds. Okay. So if people want to follow your journey, they want to help, when they want to be a part of it, uh, where do we send them? What's your ask? Um, we have a web page. It's the jcevansfoundation.org. And if people want to make donations, they can do it through that with a credit card. Um, we have a Facebook that's Jeffrey Campbell Evans Foundation is the name of the, and also you can look at my personal one, Mary Evans, and I keep that updated. But that's really all that we have for people to look at, but I keep it up to date pretty well. So lots of um, folks have been lending their time and talents, um, and there is a firm out there that's doing work for free? Yes, there is. It's called Richmond Honan. They are a company that designs um, and builds medical buildings. And one of their architects, whose name is Kevin Glade, has designed our future transplant house for us at no cost to us. Mary, I heard you describe yourself as a caretaker advocate, which I think is a beautiful way of putting it. We hear from a lot of recipient families that it is a very difficult time to be a caretaker when you have a loved one waiting for a life-saving transplant. So uh -huh. my question for you is, what advice do you have for those family members who are dealing with those challenges and the, and the stress of it all? Oh, I think the only advice I have is that you just have to learn to go with the flow. I know that it's hard to do, but you never know from day to day what's going to happen with your loved one. And especially if you're waiting for um, a donor, it's just a very stressful time because you have no idea when this is going to happen. And you just have to learn to go with the flow and be very patient with your care, your uh, patient, because they're obviously not feeling good in the first place. And then if they're on medications to help them just keep them alive while they, during this waiting period, that can cause a lot of problems for them as well. They can, they can really almost turn into a different kind of person. But you just have to be patient and understand that they're the ones that are hurting and you're just there to take care of them. Just get into that mind frame that that's your job. That would be my advice. Well, Bob and Mary, we appreciate the visit. We certainly enjoyed learning more about Jeffrey Campbell Evans. Check out the foundation, jcevansfoundation.org. I think we all agree that your leap has definitely paid off for lots of families who are waiting on that second chance. So thank you for joining us, and thank you for what you do. Well, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. On The Gifted Life, we like to take a moment for mental health. 
Yeah, Sarah, I see this mental health moment. You'll be talking about your most authentic self. Give me, before we get into that, what's an example of authenticity versus inauthenticity? Yeah, definitely. So I think right now there's a lot of social pressure, especially with social media, and there's a lot of really good social movements that are happening right now. So it can be very easy to get caught up in things and not be who you are. So there's pressures to maybe conform to a way of thinking or to a value, and that'll lead you to not being true to yourself, which causes internal discomfort. You know when you say something that's not true to who you are, you feel that almost ick in your stomach, right? You feel this isn't true. I'm lying in a way about who I am and what I believe in. So what I wanted to share with you is some tips on how to not do that and to be more authentic and to know that it's okay to be who you are and to believe what you believe. So we're all going through a pretty difficult time right now, collectively on mm. our planet. Right. Yep. <laughs> so it's a pretty difficult time. So, you know, I think there's a lot of comfort in living authentically. If you can be your true self, if you can know your true self, it pulls away a lot of stress and especially social stress and Mm -hmm. social pressures. So I want to give some tips on how we can be a little bit more authentically ourselves. All right. All right. Let's hear it. So not only are we going through a difficult time now, but in general, we have all of us, our own commitments, our own conditions, our own attachments that make it difficult to be truly yourself. There's a lot that we have to give of ourselves to others, especially if you have a family, if you have a job, a career. So how can we, in all of these difficult times with all of our difficult attachments and everything we have to do, how do we be ourselves and find comfort in ourselves? So our first tip is that I want you to remember that no one knows you better than you. I know that sounds simple, but it's really actually a big comfort to know that you know yourself better than anyone and to just reflect on yourself. My wife would argue that point, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you. (laughs) It's true that when you're in a partnership, um, you do know your partners really, really well, but truly no one's inside your mind but yourself. So you really do know yourself the best. So know that and find comfort that you have your own back in a way. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I always have my own back (laughs) in every situation. (laughs) That's good. You should. You have to look out for number one sometimes. (laughs) Um, The next little tip I want to give is to not let other people's expectations limit yourself. Or stress you out. Or stress you out. Because we do have a lot of expectations. And, you know, from your boss, from your family members, from your kids, I'm sure they expect a lot out of you. So know that you can still have all those expectations met and still be your true self. Um, Next, I want to say to take a little bit of risk. Don't be afraid to speak up for yourself. If you feel like something is wrong or something doesn't feel right to you or something is compromising who you are, don't feel afraid to speak up. Um, Again, no one can advocate for yourself better than you can. Mm-hmm. And only you are going to know what's right for you. Mm-hmm. And um, last but not least, of course, we always talk about having a purpose. Um, I don't, I'm not one of those people who believes your job is your identity. But I do believe purpose brings you a lot of comfort and a lot of drive. And if you can match your purpose to match who you are and what you believe in, it can bring you so much comfort and just meaning in your life. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I think we all know that, especially with what we do for a right. living. Our I, purpose is clear. It, our purpose in my, for me at least, over my 18 years, the purpose that we have, that's a, such a job-driven purpose, mm-hmm. has shaped me uh, in a lot of ways. I know it doesn't, I, 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 like it's not, it doesn't identify me, but it shaped me to focus on being a, a, you know, a more selfless, as we say, selfless, authentic, and passionate person in other realms and other avenues, other aspects of my life, instead of just focusing on those things when I'm at LOPA. Right. And, you know, being selfless, that is one of your ways of being authentic because that's who you are. And so if you find a purpose that matches some of your values and your inherent personality traits, it's just going to bring you a lot of joy and meaning. Mm-hmm. And then especially during um, COVID and a lot of the uh, transplant patients that we work with, uh, there's higher anxiety um, as you step outside of your mm-hmm. comfort zone, your home. Um, so that's kind of been a shift for me in just my area and having these conversations and talking. And I think we all feel the same way, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially those with kids or those who are immunocompromised and those kinds of things. So those conversations and communicating, that's been kind of helping me and we're able to take more time to do that during these times. Um, so it's a work in progress though. No, absolutely. <laughs> and you're right. When you're out of your comfort zone, you can lose yourself really quickly. But if you just remember to know yourself, be yourself, and to continue to reflect on who you are and what your values are, it'll make it a little bit easier to be uncomfortable, especially during these times. Be yourself in every moment. Yeah, that's right. All right. <laughs> Great tip, Sarah. Maybe you have a topic you'd like us to cover. Info at thegiftedlife.org. We'd love to hear from you. We have reached our question and answer segment on this episode of The Gifted Life. All right, guys, here's our question. How many people die waiting for an organ transplant? I get that question a lot out in the community pre-COVID. We'd love to get Mm -hmm. back out into the community. Um, But on average, about 20 people die per day. And when you're in a classroom that's filled with 30 kids or 26 kids and you give them those numbers, you get the wide mm-hmm. eyeballs mm-hmm. looking back at you like, well, I didn't understand that or realize that. There's a lot that goes into it, huh, Joe? There are a lot of variables that, that go into that. And we try as much as we can from a policy standpoint to maximize those uh, the opportunities for those that are, that are the sickest. In other words, the sickest patient, even though they might not be the closest ge- geographically, they get that opportunity for that life-saving organ. But even with that, it is such a rare opportunity, which is why it's so important, especially here at the Gifted Life podcast, that we get the word out. Right, education. We spread yeah. the education so that no opportunities are missed, so that this number obviously goes down to ultimately what we like to see as zero. Right, because you know our main mission is to make life happen, and unfortunately, there are more people who are waiting than those who can give the gift of life. So that's why our mission is so important, and that's why our decisions for organ donation are so important. So that was a great question. Um, If you have another question for us you want answered on the podcast, you can give us a call at 504-648-3477, and we might even play your message on the podcast. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Dylan Weber. And we learn about Dylan from his family. 
Dylan had a tough exterior, but a soft heart of gold. He cared more than anyone I know, but kept it hidden at times. He was never one to forget who he loved and who loved him. He cherished his daughter and he lived his life his way. He is my hero now and forever. When we made the decision to donate his organs, they came back and said that he had already signed up to be a donor. That was his hidden softness and love for everyone. I know how much love he gave and how caring he was. Now the world and his recipients know. And now we pause and say thank you to Dylan for the gift of life. And that is episode 143 of The Gifted Life. Enjoyed visiting with Bob and Mary, right? No doubt. Very special thanks to Bob and Mary for sharing Jeff with us and also for starting the Jeffrey Campbell Evans Foundation. What a, a huge need that there is in that you know area and for them to see that and have the foresight. And hopefully others can be inspired by what they're hearing today, you know, and, and, and maybe start focusing on that area as well. Yes, we love to learn about Jeff and his passion for cooking. We're sure there's so many families out there who are cooking in those apartments right now and just trying to do the best they can to bring some joy in. And I could just feel the love they have for him mm-hmm. and these families. That's that's my part. That's what inspires me. Uh, their goal is to have one transplant house in every state across the country. So as they grow, uh, we definitely want to have them back here on the Gifted Life podcast. Our ask for you is to spread the word. Help us spread uh, the information here on the Gifted Life podcast. You can find us at thegiftedlife.org. And maybe you were inspired to register as an organ, tissue, and eye donor. You can do that anytime at registerme.org. You can listen to any of our episodes on our website or anywhere you listen to your podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. If you do listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and subscribe so that others can help find our podcasts. And if you're on social media, please like our page on Facebook, The Gifted Life Podcast, and follow us on both Twitter and Instagram, at Gifted Life Pod. Now, go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. We're one big team. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Caraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.